church. Um, I want to welcome you here this morning. Glad to see all of you here. Um, if I haven't had an opportunity to meet you yet, I'm Ben Schultz. I'm one of the pastors here at Family Life Church. And I want to tell you that when I was younger, um, I was a Bills fan. I was a very enthusiastic Bills fan when I was younger. And I can remember, and those of you who are my age or older, you might remember um, in the 90s how exciting it was when the Bills made it to the Super Bowl. I remember that excitement. I also vividly remember that disappointment when they lost the Super Bowl again and again and again. Um, and it was, uh, it was discouraging. And, uh, and then, as I got a little older, I remember when I was in college, uh, we went through the dark years that we don't like to talk about, which was a string of, uh, of quarterbacks and uh, coaches and uh, mostly losing seasons. And uh, I got to be honest, I lost hope in the Buffalo Bills at that point. And um, there are some people who are true Bills fans, and they held strong through that dark period. Um, but I personally, I gave up. Um, and, uh, you know, I stopped, I stopped being a Bills fan. And uh, it's actually weird. I became a NASCAR fan for a couple of years. Um, I followed a few other sports and a few other teams. And I just really, it's not that I don't like the Bills. I still root for them. Um, I enjoy watching them play. I enjoy watching them win. But in my heart, I've lost hope that they're going <laughs> to win. Even when they're up by a lot, I still, I don't have hope that they're going to win. And unfortunately, that's just what happens, is when you have experienced that kind of disappointment, and when you have seen the same results over and over and over again, it's hard to hope for something different. Now, hopefully you're picking up that I'm talking about more than the bills. I'm talking about what happens to us in life when we experience disappointments. When we experience the same thing over and over and over again, it can be easy or it can be hard to hope for anything different. It can be hard to expect anything different. These past couple Sundays, we've been talking about the great rescue plan of God, how um, he sent his son Jesus to this earth to save us from sin, to save us from death, uh, to bring us into new life. And Christmas is the time when we celebrate that. We celebrate that Jesus came for us, and we celebrate the rescue plan of God. So Christmas is a time that brings us hope. But much like being a Bills fan, um, those disappointments uh, can make it hard for us to have hope. Even in this season, you can remember, you know, every day that I wake up, I'm still feeling that same pain, maybe of a health issue. I'm still dealing with that. Or each month, you know, the bills are still coming in, and I don't know if I have enough money to pay for these. Every year, there's this relationship with my parents or with my children or with a coworker that I thought was going to be getting better, but it's not. And in the face of those disappointments and those uh, things being the same, it can be easy not to have hope. So it, this leaves us question, wondering this question, how does the birth of Christ give us hope today? How does the birth of Christ give us hope for today? So what I want to do, uh, I want to look at uh, the, the birth story of Jesus. I'm going to look in Matthew 
chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can open your Bibles to the first chapter of Matthew. If you want to read along, there's probably Bibles and the seats in front of you. Um, and we're going to just read a little bit, and I'm going to talk about the hope that Jesus brings us. So, but before I do, what I'd like to do is to say a quick word of prayer. I think it's really good to pray before you read um, and ask the Lord to teach us what we need to learn from this passage. So um, as you're turning there, I'm going to pray real quick. Uh, Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit to come here and to teach us as we read your word. I pray that you would uh, apply it to our hearts and our lives and give us hope um, and give us instruction. In your name we pray. Everyone together said? So, Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 18, all right? And it says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, and hopefully we're all adult enough to understand what it means when it says that they came together. But before that, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, but he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had it in his mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save people from their sins. So we can see already in this story that Joseph was a little conflicted about marrying Mary, knowing that she had already been pregnant. Um, and it says that he was faithful to the law. And he knew that a woman shouldn't be pregnant before she is married. And so he said, this is not right. This is not good. And so I want to be faithful to what's right. Um, but he also recognizes that, you know, he's a good man. He's a compassionate man. And so he doesn't want to bring unnecessary disgrace to Mary. So we're going to deal with this quietly. But as it says, an angel appears to him. And the angel says to him, this is of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, I got to believe that Mary had probably already told Joseph that. But Joseph needed the angel to tell him so that he would, he would believe, okay, this is bigger than us. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. The angel also told him that it was going to be a boy and told him that they would name him Jesus. Now, before we go on, I want to take a moment and talk about the name Jesus. What does that name mean? Now, to us, when we hear the name Jesus, I, I think most of us, we probably think of Jesus, our Lord. We think of, you know, the Bible that tells us about Jesus and the songs that we sing about Jesus and, and how we pray to Jesus. But for them, in this day, Jesus was not an uncommon name. Jesus is the Greek uh, version of the Hebrew name Joshua. And it's easy to imagine why the name Joshua would have been a popular name. If you'll remember, Joshua was a uh, Jewish, would have been a hero to them. He was a leader who led their people into the promised land. Moses led the people out of Egypt and then handed things over to Joshua, who then led them into the promised land. He led the people through many key uh, victories and to conquer their land. So to them, Joshua symbolizes victory. Joshua symbolizes the promise of God. 
And the name Jesus means the same, is the same thing. It's the same name in a, in just, in a different language. So it, it's easy to imagine why that would have been a, a common name, a popular name to give your son. But I think what's really important is to note what this name means. The name Jesus and Joshua, they both mean the same thing. They mean Jehovah is salvation. Or more simply, they mean the Lord saves. The name of Jesus means the Lord saves, which is why the angel says, you will name him Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. So the first thing I want to say, friends, is that we can have hope because Jesus is our Savior. And I know that's simple, but it's powerful. We have hope because Jesus is our Savior. And this phrase that's in there says, he will save the people from their sins. This is significant. Uh, And I think it's important for us to understand that salvation is more than just forgiveness for the bad things you've done. Salvation is more than forgiveness. It's so much more than just forgiveness, that you are a sinful person, and because of Jesus, you have been forgiven. It's more than that. Salvation is freedom. It's freedom from the guilt and the shame and whatever you might carry with you. It's freedom from the the temptation and the tendency and the the, uh, natural inclination to do sinful things. It's freedom from that. Salvation is a new way of life. It's a way of life that's motivated by love. It's a way of life in which you uh, feel God's love and God's acceptance, and you know whose you are. And that is something that should give us hope. That is the life that we have been called to live. And i got to tell you that we desperately need a Savior. Um, Because even on our best days, even the best of us with our best of intentions, we still mess up. We still make mistakes. Um, And what I have found, maybe you found the same thing, is that we cannot fix ourselves. In fact, usually when we try to fix something, we just make it worse. I don't know if anybody else can relate to that. Um, I'll give you an illustration of that. A few years ago, I had a pickup truck, and um, the front brakes and the rotors needed to be changed. And I took it to a shop to have it done, but it was going to be really expensive. And it's because of the way that the truck was designed that it was a little bit more of a job to change the rotors. You had to take a bunch of stuff off to do this. So I decided I would save money. I took it home, decided I would do the job myself to save money. Um, And if you have ever replaced rotors on an old pickup truck, you can probably guess where this story is going. Um, The rotors were stuck, and they would not come off. And so being the, you know, the smart uh, front yard mechanic that I was, I took a sledgehammer to it and just beat those rotors off. And in doing so, I actually managed to damage (laughs) the vehicle. I think if I remember right, I I damaged the wheel bearings so badly that I, I couldn't even really drive it. And in the end, what I had to do is I had to take it back to the shop, and I had to pay them not only to repair the wheel bearings, but then also to replace the rotors because I had to take it all apart and put it all back together. It ended up costing me more time and money because I tried to fix it myself, which is just, um, it's a small vehicle problem. It's a silly story, but it illustrates a lesson that often when we try to fix problems ourselves, we end up making things worse. And just like I should have just let certain things let the mechanic handle, there are things in our lives that we can't fix, that we need somebody with more experience and more understanding 
and more wisdom to handle. We need a savior. Take Joseph, for instance. Think about this, okay? So Joseph is engaged to be married to this young woman, and then he finds out that she's pregnant. But he's a good man, and he wants to do what is right. So he decides, listen, we're going to deal with this right. I'm just going to end this marriage quietly. We're just going to go our separate ways. This makes sense. This is the best way just to deal with this problem. He's trying to solve it the right way. But he's doing the opposite of what God had planned. Even though he thinks he's doing the right thing, it's the opposite of what God has planned. And not until the angel comes to him and shows him what to do, and he trusts in God's plan, does he move in the right direction. And how many of us have done similar things? You know, we become aware of a problem, maybe a problem in ourselves, or a problem, and we say, I'm going to fix that. And we think, I know the best way to deal with this. We can just cover this up and not talk about it, and it will be okay. Or maybe we think, you know what? I'm strong enough. I can control this. I'll just bite my tongue. Uh, you know what I mean? I'll be more self-disciplined. I can handle this. Or maybe we think, you know, this isn't really my problem. This is somebody else's problem, and I'm going to fix it by confronting them, and that will really, that will bring a lot of re- resolution to this situation. Um, but, you know, a lot of times we end up making the problem worse when we should trust in God and what he's doing because he always has a plan in mind. So let's get back to our story. Um, I left off in, uh, I think it was verse 21, they'll name him uh, Jesus, for he will save the people for their sins. The next verse, uh, this is Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, it says, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when when Joseph woke up from this dream... He did what the angel had commanded him. He took Mary home to be his wife. But he had no union with her until he gave birth to a son. And they gave him the name Jesus. Now, there's a part of this story that really intrigues me. I've heard this passage uh, a lot. There's a part of it that really stands out to me, that really intrigues me, and it's in verse 23. Uh, Verse 23 refers to a prophet who said, A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. If you've been around Christmas very much, you're probably familiar with this phrase. You've probably heard this verse before. This is probably really not new to you. But have you ever wondered what this is talking about here? Matthew, who's the one writing this, he's recounting the story of Jesus' birth, and he draws attention to the fact that Mary um, had not been with Joseph, that Mary was a virgin, um, and that she had not yet been married when she conceived. And then he points out, he says, all of that fulfills what was spoken by the prophet. And so we should ask ourselves, what prophet? What is Matthew talking about here? What prophecy is he referring to? Now, I'll point out to you um, that if you have your Bibles in front of you, you can look and you can see. At the end of verse 23, there will be some type of footnote there, probably. There will be a little letter or a little number or an asterisk or something that will direct your attention to a note, probably in the margin or at the bottom of your page somewhere, it'll tell you what Matthew's talking about. Did anybody find that in their Bible? Can someone tell me what verse he's referring to there? Isaiah 7, 14. And so I want to look really quickly at this prophecy that 
he's referring to. You don't need to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7 if you don't want, because Matthew pretty much just quotes it word for word. Um, But I look back at um, what's going on here. What's this prophecy that he's talking about? And so I studied it, and here is what I learned. Isaiah was a prophet in Jerusalem about 700 years before Jesus. So 700 years is a long time. And so when Isaiah lived was very different. Israel looked very different than in Jesus' time. It was a very different place. Um, So at that time, Israel had been divided into two kingdoms. There was the uh, northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Jerusalem was the capital city of the southern kingdom of Judah. I promise I'm going somewhere with this. And King Ahaz was the king in Jerusalem over that southern kingdom. In chapter 7, what's happening here is that King Ahaz and his people are very, very worried because they just received word that the northern kingdom of Israel has made an alliance with Syria, and those two countries are going to attack Israel. And so they're very, very worried about what's going to happen. Isaiah receives this word from the Lord, this prophecy. He comes to King Ahaz, and he says, the Lord says, stay calm, which is what you want to hear when you're you know, really, really worried. Is someone to come and say, stay calm. He says, stay calm. Don't be afraid. The Lord will protect you, and these two nations will not defeat you. That's the promise from the Lord. That seems like what you would want to hear, right? King Ahaz does not believe Isaiah. He does not receive this word. He does not trust in the Lord. So Isaiah says, listen, ask God for a sign. Ask him to show you any miracle you want that will confirm that he's with you. Just ask, He says, anything in the highest heights or the deepest depth, God will do a miracle and it will prove to you that he's going to protect you. And Ahaz says, nah, I'm good. I don't need, I don't need a sign from God. I mean, what is he thinking? If God comes to me and says, hey, ask me for a miracle. I'll do any kind of miracle you want. What would you ask for? And King Ahaz says, nah, I don't need something. Why does he do that? Is it because his faith in God is so strong that he doesn't need a sign to prove it? No, it's not. King Ahaz doesn't want a sign that proves God's promise because he's already decided in his heart that he's not going to trust God. King Ahaz has already decided that he's got a better plan. He doesn't need God's help. He's going to fix this on his own. So here's what he does. He came up with his own plan. He turned to the Assyrian Empire. And at that time, the Assyrian Empire, which is to the north and a little bit more to the, to the um, east, is a large empire that has begun to amass a powerful army. And King Ahaz sends messengers to the Assyrian Empire, and he says, If I surrender my kingdom to you, will you protect us? If we become your servants and we'll do whatever you say and we'll pay whatever taxes you ask, whatever gold or whatever uh, we, whatever you want, it's all yours if you will come and protect us. And so this is the deal that he's decided to make to save his kingdom. He doesn't want a sign from God. But Isaiah responds and says, you don't want a sign? Too bad. God's going to give you a sign anyways. This is where we get uh, verse 7, or verse 14. He says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. 
So the prophecy that he says is there will be a young woman who have a child, and his name will be Emmanuel. And he goes on to say that while this, child is, while this boy is still a child, those two kingdoms you're afraid of will both be destroyed. But when the child grows up, the Assyrian Empire will return, and they will also destroy the kingdom of Judah as well, which is exactly what happened. So Ahaz here, by choosing to trust in his own plan, he receives a prophecy of destruction instead of protection because he chose to trust in himself and not in what the Lord was doing. Now, you're probably asking yourself, okay, what does this have to do with the birth of Jesus? So Matthew, as he's writing the story, he's retelling the story of the birth of Jesus, he draws a connection between this prophecy that Isaiah spoke about this young uh, boy and the birth of Jesus. And so, of course, I have this, this question. So is he prophesying about um, the boy in King Ahaz's day, or is he prophesying about Jesus? The answer is yes. If you study biblical prophecy, what you'll notice is that often there's more than one fulfillment. And Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled first in the day of King Ahaz, and secondly, in the virgin birth of Jesus. And Here's where I'm going with this, is what we learn from this is that God is always working in the moment, and God is always working towards the future. God is always working in the moment, and he's always working towards the future. He does two things at the same time. He's that good. And even when it appears like the story is over, God is not done. I mean, think about King Ahaz. At the end of King Ahaz's story, the kingdom of Israel is gone, the kingdom of Judah is gone. It's all wasteland. Everything is gone. End of story. Game over, right? But no, because there's still a prophecy, that he, a promise that he said to Abraham that your descendants will be more than the stars in the heaven. And there's a promise that he made to David. He said, you will always have a king to sit on the throne. And there was a prophecy that he said, there will be a virgin who will have a son and his name will be Emmanuel. And even though you look around and you see, all I see is wasteland, God is not done. If God is still working, there is hope. I've been a, a youth pastor here at this church for many years. And um, I've had a lot of students have come and gone um, in our church and through our ministry. And there have been some students, I'll tell you, where I thought, I'm not sure what's going to happen with this young person, this young man or this young woman. They, they don't really seem to be taking things seriously. They're not making very wise decisions. They're not really getting anything out of it. I don't even know why they're coming here. And I, to my own chagrin, was surprised years later to find out that they were following the Lord, that some of them have gone into ministry, that they have this close relationship with Jesus that at the time I didn't see and I didn't even think was possible. And every time I think about that, I'm reminded that the God works in places in ways that we don't see. And in fact, let that be a testimony to you right now if you have a family member or a loved one or a friend who you feel like is a lost cause. There's no such thing. If God is working, there is still hope. So let's fast forward back to Jesus' birth where Matthew says this is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And he says, well, he says, 
this is the fulfillment of a prophecy of a boy named Emmanuel, right? But the angel told Joseph to name the boy Jesus, right? So does this prophecy apply to Jesus? Because his name is not Emmanuel. That's not what he was named. How does this apply? I want to take a minute, just like we looked at the name Jesus, what does Jesus mean? I want to look for a second at what does Emmanuel mean? Now, Emmanuel is a Hebrew name. Um, And I don't know very much Hebrew. I only know a few little words because the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. So I know just a few pieces of it from having read the Old Testament. Um, So I don't know much. But one thing that I do know is that El means God. El, as in E-L, is a Hebrew word that means God. And you see this in a lot of other Hebrew words. For instance, Elohim was their name for God. Or El Shaddai is another name that means God Almighty. So when you see that El in the name, that's God. Um, And this is also true in other Hebrew names. And a really good example of this is Israel, where the last two letters in that are El. And Israel means, it literally means one who wrestles with God, was named after the, the man who wrestled with God. But it also has come to mean the people of God, God's people. There's a city in Israel called Bethel, which is the house of God. Here we see Emmanuel, and that El at the end means God. And so Emmanuel, if you look it up in Hebrew, literally means with us is God, or God is with us. Now, of course, you probably already know this if you were paying attention because Matthew said this. He said we should call him Emmanuel, which is God with us. We can have hope. Because Jesus is Emmanuel. We can have hope because Jesus is Emmanuel. Now, I'm not saying that's what they named him. I'm saying that's who he is. Because in this story, Emmanuel is more than a name. Emmanuel is a promise. Emmanuel is a promise of God. He's a sign of what God is doing. He is here with us. Uh, One author that I read said, if he had not been Emmanuel, he could not be Jesus. If he had not been God with us, he could not be our Savior. Because he's not just saying, this is the way to heaven, this is the way to life, and I hope you make it. He's saying, I'm here with you. I've been where you've been. I felt what you feel. And I'm with you every step of the way. And if you can relate to that feeling of hopelessness that I talked about before, where um, maybe it's a health issue, maybe it's a financial issue, maybe it's relationships, you've, you've felt that hopelessness, like this is not going to get better, this is not going to change, then I want to tell you, God is with you. And the enemy, he wants to tell you, you're all alone. You should give up. You're all alone, and this isn't going to get better. But don't listen to him, because he's a liar. God is with you. And we know this because Jesus is Emmanuel. Um, I started this morning by reading uh, a few verses. We read a few verses that are from the very first chapter of Matthew. I'd like to end this morning by reading a couple of verses that are in the very last chapter of Matthew. Um, So if you have your Bible, you can flip all the way to the end of of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8. Um, And here, this is at the end of the story, 
um, after Jesus has grown, he has ministered, he is uh, arrested, crucified, buried, comes back to life. Very end of the story. These are some of his final instructions, some of his final words to his followers before he returns to the place with his Father in heaven. So Matthew chapter 28, uh, if you look in verse 18, is where I'm going to start. And Jesus came to them, he's talking about his, his followers, he came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go, make disciples in all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And what does it say right there? Surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So his final instructions here include a command and they include a promise. And if you are a follower of Jesus, then that command applies to you. If you are a follower, then when he says, go and share the gospel, that applies to you. But also, if you are a follower, then that promise is to you as well, that he is with you always to the end of the age. Anywhere you go, no matter what, he is with you. This is an important lesson about the character of God is that we are never sent out on our own to do something for God. We are sent out as partners with God. We are sent out hand in hand with him. Jesus goes with us when we go out. So we can have hope because Jesus is always with us. And whatever we go to do, wherever he sends us, he is always with us. Several years ago, um, I was serving as a director for Camp Judah, which is a kid's summer camp that we do. Um, And on this one particular night, I was having a bad day. And we had a a problem with one of the campers that was not going well. And I had um, some problem with some of the staff members that I don't think I handled very well. And it was like a frustrating day. And I remember at the end of the day, I was feeling very discouraged. And so I just went out in the middle of a field and just sat and felt sorry for myself, which is a good thing to do when you're feeling discouraged. And uh, as I was sitting in that field feeling bad for myself, um, I decided to call a friend and to complain, <laughs> mostly. And I told him, like, I, I, I don't know what to do. Um, things aren't going well. These are the problems, and I don't have the answers. I don't know how to handle this. I kind of want to just quit and go home. I'm very discouraged. And he says, oh, that's good. That's good. He said, it's good that you realize you can't handle these things on your own because you're not supposed to do them alone. He reminded me, God sent you to be the the director of this camp. And if he sent you, then he's going to give you what you need to lead. He's going to be with you in those situations you need. And, um, And you just have to learn to trust him and what he's doing. And that was really good advice. Not only did it get me through that week, but that has been really good advice to me. Um, And so now when I find myself, I remember that advice when I find myself in a situation where I don't know how to handle this. I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to, I have a situation at work and I'm like, I can't, this is bigger than me, I don't know what to do. And I think, good, that's good. I should know, I should be reminded that I can't do this on my own. And I'm not on my own. Jesus is always with us. I want to remind you this morning, you are never alone. 
no matter how alone you might feel, how discouraged you might feel, I want you to know that you are never alone. And whenever you start to lose hope, you need to remind yourself that God is with you. God is always with you. You know, I think the most dangerous moment of hopelessness is when we focus on the situation. When we look at the, the problem, we look at the, our, you know, maybe the health, the diagnosis, or we look at the, our finances, or whatever it is, we're looking at the problem, and that's when we feel the most hopeless. But when we refocus our attention on the God who is with us, on the God who is our creator that is with us, when we focus our attention on the God who knows everything who's with us, the God who knew it all before it happened, and he knows the end, we have hope. That God is on our side. He's in the bunker with us. He's in the sinking boat with us. He's in the situation with us, that God. And if we can focus on that, that's a reason to have hope. Amen? Um, I'm going to pray as I close. I want to invite you, just take a moment and just bow your head, close your eyes. Just take one quiet moment with yourself. And I want to encourage you with this thing that I've been practicing this week as I've been preparing is to try to picture God with me. And every time I face a situation that seems difficult or discouraging or I want to quit, I try to pause and picture God is with me right now. If you're facing sickness right now, I want you to picture God, your healer, who is with you right now. If you're struggling as a parent, picture God the Father giving you wisdom right now. He has not sent you somewhere that he's not equipping you for. Don't be discouraged and don't give up. If you're feeling depressed, God, your provider, cares for you. And he is with you. And he sees your heartache. And he sees your tears, and he knows. Remind your soul that God is with you. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you've come for us to rescue us and to be with us. And this morning we take this time, we choose to trust in you and not in ourselves. You are our Savior. You are our Lord. We love you. Amen. Amen. I pray that you have a a blessed week. I want to invite you to join us next Sunday morning. Um, It will be Christmas Eve day, and we're going to have a special service here on Sunday morning, and I want you all, invite you all to come. It will be a little shorter than normal because We know that people have uh, activities going on that day, but there will be uh, a special appearance by our kids' choir, which I'm looking forward to. Um, There will be a uh, a story with a live nativity uh, up here, which will be fun, and plus we'll sing um, all of your favorite uh, Christmas carols. I hope that you're all able to join us uh, next Sunday morning. So have a good week. Be blessed.